us bardheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together this morning in a unity that you've provided, Father. Thank you for faith. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for reminding us of how much you love us and what a privilege it is to spread that love in this world amongst our brethren especially, our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we all be encouraged by our participation this morning. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us due to illness, and we pray for those that are still ill beyond repair except for the one saving grace that you've offered through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are most grateful and thankful for that work, that gift that he made on our behalf on a cross 2,000 years ago. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. How's the volume? Is that all right? Because I'm not going to be able to go much higher than this, I can tell. Is that all right? You guys in the back, Ma? All right. Um, <clears throat> here's where it all began. Go to Proverbs 3.26. Proverbs 3, verse 26. <clears throat> this is where this series began. The Lord is our confidence. <clears throat> Proverbs 3:26 For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Uh, that's where we started this series. The Lord will be your confidence. Paul wrote also similarly, uh, but conversely, go to Philippians 3:3, 3, 3, same topic of confidence that we've been on. <clears throat> Uh, Philippians 3.3. So the wisdom states, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence, excuse me, in the flesh. No confidence where? in the flesh. It's not that we shouldn't have confidence, it's just we shouldn't have confidence there, up here on the board. Put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3.3. 3. It is wise to place ample emphasis on no here. No confidence. Not a little bit, not a smidgen, not, well, I'd like to reserve this little piece over here because, you know, uh, the world esteems me in this way. None like zero confidence in the flesh. So it's wise to place emphasis on no in this statement. Even one iota of this brand of confidence increases our risk of stumbling. Good intention, then, is to rid our lives of it, all of it, all of it. Any area where you're still 
clinging to uh, in the flesh, any area that you think is uh, worthy of being respected, throw it out. There's no real self-respect for a believer. It's all Christ-respect. There's no self-confidence. It's always Christ-confidence. There's no self-esteem. It's Christ-esteem. And the sooner we all learn that, the better off we are because the freer we are. So the good intention is to get rid of that, uh, any notion of that, any confidence in the flesh, all of it at that. Last week's blog was titled, Looking, <clears throat> sheesh, hold on. This just happened yesterday, by the way, when I was riding my bicycle. I don't know what happened. Maybe a bug hit me in the back of the throat. I don't know. Honestly, I got off my bike and I was like this, and I was like, what is going on? Anyways, last week's blog was titled, Looking in the Mirror. This week's is Love in Action. Looking in the Mirror, Love in Action. And again, as is always the case, the Spirit never makes any mistakes. There's always a sequence on purpose. The prior, Looking in the Mirror, is an examination of self. The latter an examination of works. The prior, an examination of self, looking in the mirror. The latter, an examination of works, love in action. Together, along with uh, this week's messages, the Spirit has focused <clears throat> our attention on which of the two possible areas of confidence increases when we examine ourselves. Which area increases when we examine ourselves, we are commanded to examine ourselves daily, all the time. Which area increases? Uh, the two areas, of course, are in Christ. Does our confidence increase in Christ when we examine ourselves? Or does somehow we pervert it and our confidence increases in the flesh? Along the way, the Spirit's been giving us warning signs in other words, things to look, look out for. For example, up here on the board, this idea of confidence in the flesh. The moment we look in the mirror and give the needle a little nudge off of the 100% God position, we have begun the process of our own demise. As soon as we budge it, even nudge it a little bit, as soon as we say, oh, I'm looking swell this morning, uh, you know, I can take a little credit. You know, I, I, I mean, come on. Aren't I the one who, you know, read my Bible yesterday? Aren't I the one who showed up to church today? Aren't I the one who read the blog? Aren't I the one that's doing all this good stuff? Shouldn't I take a little credit? No. No, that's a very slippery slope. And that's religion in you trying to emerge as a victor in some small way. We might have a lot of street credibility to our names. Some of you can relate to this. Uh, but so did Paul. Big deal. Big deal. No one in here, I know for a fact, myself included, no one in here was as big of a deal in their time as Paul was. So Paul had a lot of street credibility, which gave him a strong argument for his warnings. Go to Philippians 3.4. Philippians 3.4. Gave him a strong argument to his warnings 
although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So he starts this argument. He liked doing this thing. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. You want to talk about street credibility? He said, I have it all. I had it all. So I know where you're coming from. I know the, the trappings. I know the struggle, the striving, the agonizing over losing the flesh. Um, and then he gives us the highlight reel. We're not going to read it today, but he gives us the highlight reel of why he has so much street credibility. We've already read it. Here was his conclusion, though, up here on the board. Revolutionary thinking. <clears throat> we are to examine ourselves, compile all of our street credibility into one big heap of creature credit and light a match to it. That should be our visual. Take everything we think we're worth, all our self-righteousness, all our self-esteem, all of that self-dash, whatever you want to call it. Take it all, throw it, throw it in a big old heap and burn it. That's what it's worth, basically. Uh, this is precisely what Paul did in Philippians 3, 7 to 9. And you know what? Like us, he was blessed for it. When we do that thing, we're blessed. He was blessed for it. All of this, of course, happens within our own souls. Uh, we can't control what the world thinks about us, good or bad. So what do you care uh, what the world thinks about you doing this very thing? We can't control what the world thinks of us, and we shouldn't really care. He nails down his argument with verse 7 and continuing. Look at verse 7. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So here's where we get to the mainstay of our recent messages up here on the board. Not having a righteousness of my own, not self-righteous in other words, this really requires a bit of introspection for every believer in Christ. Our flesh is 100% self-righteous always. We can, that's one thing we can count on the flesh for. Not much, right? But that we can count on the flesh for, it being self-righteous. There's never a time we can tame it. We can't make our flesh. See, that's what we call false humility. We can't make our flesh stop being self-righteous. We can't. When we try... It's basically a false humility. It's not real humility. The temptation to follow the flesh then is constant. To look in the mirror and think something special uh, and that you're responsible uh, for it. Contrarily, of course, from the same verse is, but that which comes through faith up here on the board in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
So contrary to self-righteousness is Christ's righteousness, the mainstay of the new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This righteousness bears good fruit by grace through faith, such as our topic over the last 30-something parts now, confidence. This righteousness bears confidence. In other words, having faith that you are right before God. There is nothing more settling to the soul. It's how we're designed. It's why whenever you depart, you get that uncomfortableness, that sort of red flag on your radar, like, uh, I might be doing something a little bit off here. My motivation might be bad. And therefore, as soon as you realize that, as soon as your conscience starts convicting you, then you lose confidence. So there's nothing sweeter in terms of confidence than having faith that you are right before God. We finished up this passage with some encouragement, almost like Paul was writing, okay, after all is said and done, please don't become overwhelmed. Because it's very easy, uh, especially for a group like this, I meant that as not a compliment. (laughs) It's very easy for you all with your problems and your failures and your mistakes and all the other garbage that you guys have done just this past week. It's easy to hear a message like this and become overwhelmed. And Paul doesn't want that. Paul didn't want that. I certainly don't want it. Just remember that none of us have made it yet. Only folks like, and excuse me for leaving anyone else out, these are just two people I thought of when I thought of this. Only folks like uh, Bill Johnson and Frank Westcott, for example, have made it so far. They're the only ones who have been perfected. Right? Not the only, you know what I'm saying, right? They're the ones who have people like them. They're the only ones. In other words, people that are in heaven. The rest of us? Hold your thumb there, go to Philippians 1.21 for some perspective on this. So I'm going to get a nice dose of encouragement this morning. <clears throat> Philippians 1.21, Paul said it very simply, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, living for Christ Who said if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you? Who said that? Christ did. So to live for Christ, you're always going to suffer. And I said this, I think it was this past week. If if you're not suffering somehow, in other words, if the world embraces you, um, something's probably not right. (laughs) It means you're not running contrary to the world. You're running with the world. You've become a friend of the world. And And the world loves its own. And so, to live is Christ. To die? Heck yeah. It's gain. I get to go be free from this wretched body, as Paul would say. Who's going to free me? Up here on the board. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We are sojourners here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. We never make it until we die, or are raptured first, but we never make it, you understand? And so let's not be overwhelmed. So we never make it until we die or are raptured and are ultimately sanctified, made perfect in Christ. So do not become depressed about failing. 
Do not become depressed about failing. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this. As, as much as we long to be perfect now, this is the point. I mean, who doesn't want to get rid of this body of flesh? It's disgusting. I hate sin. I hate sin so bad it makes me crazy. I hate it in myself. I despise it in all of you. I just hate sin, and I really, it would be really nice <laughs> not to have to deal with it anymore, internally or externally. Amen? It really would be nice. And I can't wait till heaven for that reason. So when we think that way, even though we long to be that way, to be in that situation where sin is no more, we still have to exercise patience. So let's find some more encouragement from James. Go to James 5, verse 7. James 5, verse 7. So we have to be patient. I mean, we're all chomping at the bit. We all want to get there. We all want to shed this body this sin that entangles us. James 5, verse 7. <clears throat> Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I have that highlighted in my notes. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So take it easy on yourself. If the Lord can be merciful to us, we ought to be merciful to ourselves, right? If he can do it, then we should be able to do it for our own sakes. Again, up here on the board, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We are sojourners here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We never make it until we die and are ultimately sanctified. So do not become depressed about failing. This brings up a fascinating point of truth that is going to require all of you to concentrate. So we just read James 5.11, part B, which reads, The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. This means that we ought never become depressed about our past failures. They're there. And so the guidance really is don't confuse condemnation with education. Don't confuse condemnation with education. You shouldn't be living in condemnation from your failures that were yesterday, that are behind you. You should be educated by them. But you're not supposed to be living a depressed life because you failed. You're not supposed to turn to that uh, under pressure. You're supposed to turn to Christ under pressure and look for grace, looking forward to what lies ahead so please do everything in yourself to cling to this principle up here on the board. 
We are not allowed to fail so that Satan can take advantage of us. Just think about that. We are not allowed, and that is true, we are allowed to fail. We are not allowed to fail so that Satan can take advantage of us. I think some of you need to tattoo this principle on your hand so that you never forget it. Have you forgotten, now concentrate, have you forgotten that it is God who allows you to fail? I mean, he's keeping you alive, right? He could take you out anytime he wants, but he's kept you alive. And so he knows that if he keeps you alive, you're going to fail. So it is really God who allows you to fail. And that in doing so, his grace shines all the more. Do you remember this? I think it's easy to forget. I think especially with all the emphasis that the Spirit's been putting on us for years now, on wake up, wake up, call spade a spade. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to look in the mirror. We have to be honest about not just what comes out of our mouths, but our deeds. We don't just worship in word, but word and truth, word and deeds. Go to Romans 5.20. So the question is, have you forgotten that it is God who allows you to fail? And in doing so, His grace shines all the more. Have you forgotten these things? Romans 5.20. The law came in. Oh my goodness. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Do you see that? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, on the backdrop of sin in this world is grace. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And of course, we can't get too far on this because there's a disclaimer here. Because some people would go like this, oh, giddy up, right? I'm going to do God a favor and I'm going to keep on sinning. So that grace can abound all the more. And then I can run around with false humility and say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Isn't God great? Let me just keep screwing up so you can see God's grace through me. So there's a disclaimer. Look at uh, 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so, so that grace may increase? Is that supposed to be our attitude? Oh, well, since it's bringing glory to God, I might as well just keep on living this lifestyle, this wretched lifestyle. Is that what should, should that be our response? Of course not. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Up here on the board. Getting mercy right. Remember, God is compassionate and merciful. And that's a wonderful thing. But the human flesh immediately goes, oh. So I can just keep on doing whatever the hell I want to do, and God's going to be always merciful and gracious? 
What's wrong with that attitude? You're going to get mercy right, my friends. Mercy, as I've taught you, is not transactional. It's within the sphere of Him. Right? It's why the Bible also says, in one facet of what I just described, God is merciful to the merciful. God gives, great, or God gives mercy to the merciful. That's the same person who understands what I just described. That mercy isn't transactional, just like love isn't transactional. It's not about iterating or line itemizing things and saying, well, look at me, I'm merciful, so God, you have to be merciful to me because look at all these instances of mercy. God says, no. <coughs> That's not how this works. Your heart is bad. You're only doing that to play me. You're only doing that thing because you think that I owe you now. You're only, you know, doing that because you're playing a religious game. You got to get mercy right. God is merciful to the merciful. You got to get it right. Mercy isn't, in other words, to just rub it hits the road, you won't be delivered, let's put it that way. Because God doesn't, God gives grace to the humble. If you're arrogantly playing a game, you won't be delivered. You won't be set free. Does that make sense? If you're playing a game, you won't be set free. That's the point. So you've got to get mercy right. Mercy isn't a pre-sinning form of encouragement. In other words, you can't say, well, since he's always merciful, then I can just keep on sinning. I should. I can and I will. Mercy is never supposed to encourage you to sin. It is a post-sinning ointment. That's very different. If our viewpoint of God's mercy somehow leads us to sin, we have it wrong in our soul. If that's what you think of God, you don't even know Jesus Christ very well. If that's what you think mercy and grace is all about, you being able to um, manipulate God, you don't understand what the Bible has to say about it yet. And that's why you're still not delivered. It's why you're like the dog that goes back to its vomit. So if our viewpoint of God's mercy somehow leads us to sin, we have it wrong in our soul. It is merciful of God that we die eventually so that we can be fully sanctified in heaven. Again, look at verse 1, verse 1 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? It's a rhetorical question. It's really important that we understand Paul's response to his own rhetoric. Look at verse 2. May it never be. If I had my voice, I'd probably raise it right now. But I can't. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Those are completely incongruous things. Those, aren't, those things don't... Uh, then they, they can't live together. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Up here on the board, a little help on that. God's good intention isn't that we fail for the purpose of injuring ourselves, though he allows us to reap what we sow. When we fail, 
God's grace is put on full display, <clears throat> and it's glorious. His faithfulness ought to engender confidence in us. Again, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? God's good intention isn't that we fail for the purpose of injuring ourselves, though he allows us to reap what we sow. When we fail, God's grace is put on full display, and it's glorious. His faithfulness ought to engender confidence in us. That's a completely different mindset, in other words. We're not supposed to take that pre-sinning mindset that just because we know God's mercy <coughs> is on the other side of sin, that we take advantage of Him and we play religion. If we do that, we lose. We lose. If we confess our sin after we've sinned and we lean on His grace and His mercy, we win. But we don't go in. Remember, we're going to talk a little bit more about the process this morning. We don't go into sin just knowing that we can get out of it every time. That's a very shameful, ungodly, unchristlike attitude about sin. And the problem is, if you possess that attitude, it, I'm trying to tell you something. You are in misery for it. You're not in the sphere of God's love and His warmth and His embrace and His love and kindness and His compassion. Yes, those things are on full display, but you don't have that. You don't feel them. You don't have them because you've decided to eject yourself, reject sound teaching from the Word of God, and keep yourself outside of that realm experientially. And that's all He's trying to do. He's trying to wake you up and say, don't be discouraged, but at the same time, don't play that game either. What I'm trying to say here is this. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3, we all fail, and that none of us have made it yet. Which means that we must have a godly soul response to failure, lest we become captives of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. We have to have a godly soul response to failure. can't be premeditated. It has to be godly. Let me state this different up here on the board. Think about failure this way. Think about, you look in the mirror, you say, oh boy, boy did I fail. Or even better yet, as to our recent messages, my lifestyle is a failure. I've got entire stripes of a, most of us are like zebras, right? We have entire stripes of lifestyle failures. Entire stripes. And we have to look at that as well. But when we recognize such a stripe or an individual line item, we're at a crossroad. Every time we confess our sin, when we see it, we stand at a crossroad. To one side, there is condemnation. Stay down. To the other is salvation. Get up. The righteous person gets up every time, glorifying God in the process. Go to Proverbs 24, verse 10. <coughs> Someone have like a, a halls or something like that? Do you? Oh, you don't, Chris? Oh, oh that's cool. 
Is it a good one? Because I don't want junk. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> see how I am? Big stripe. Ooh, this one's a good one. This is cherry. Like Don was probably going to give me one of those menthols. Huh, Don? Yeah. That's because you're 100. No, I'm just kidding. Don't try to shut up now. You failed. You missed your opportunity. <laughs> I'm just bitter because I can't barely speak here. Failure is a crossroad. Remember that. We're all going to come in front of the mirror and say, I failed today. This part of my life is a failure. But get up. That's the point. Get up. Don't let Satan and the kingdom of darkness keep you down with condemnation because that's all they're going to whisper in your ear. Stay down. Stay down. You're not worthy. Christ says, you're one of my own. You're getting up. I'm going to drag you out of the thicket. Proverbs 24.10 If you are slack in the, days of, in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? My son, eat honey for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Wisdom. Find wisdom, and your hope will not be cut off. That's certainly related to confidence. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. For a wicked man, or excuse me, a righteous man falls seven times, and what? Rises again. A righteous man shall live by faith. Remember that. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Again, the point on the board that we're developing is that every time we confess our sin, we stand at a crossroad. To one side, there is condemnation. In other words, stay down. It's whispering, stay down. To the other is salvation or deliverance which says, get up. I didn't save you so that you could stay down. I saved you so you could get up. The righteous person gets up every time, glorifying God in the process. God wills it. You see that? God wills it. And the angels are cheering for you, saying, get up. You remember like the Rocky? Get up, Rock! Hey, I can actually do Mickey's voice. That's so cool. It's one good thing. Always a silver lining. Get a rock. Right? You bum. Right? God wills it. He's in your corner. Do you understand? He's in your corner. All these hard lessons, the weight of them, it's to set you free. Remember I told you the only reason they were hard is because your flesh is one hell of a stubborn little bugger. That's why they were hard, because your flesh didn't want to give it up. Your flesh says, no way. That stripe's been painted on me my entire life. I'm not getting rid of it. Some of you can look back and go, I remember saying that, and now it's gone. 
and I'm a hundred times infinitely better off because of it, right? Yeah, it's hard work, but God wills it. Not always easy getting up, but that's the righteous person's attitude. I just want to get up. Here's the process we just talked about up here on the board. Again, we are not allowed to fail so that Satan can take advantage of us. That is not the purpose. That is not the purpose. He disciplines us, so we learn. But we are not to live in condemnation. Then we noted in Romans 6, 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? God's good intention isn't that we fail for the purpose of injuring ourselves, though he allows us to reap what we sow. However, when we fail, God's grace is put on full display, and it's glorious. When you get up, it's glorious. His faithfulness ought to engender confidence in us. Knowing that God wills you to get up. He wants nothing more than for you to get up. Because he knows that he's the one who's empowering it. And that brings glory to him. We all fail consistently, but it's how we respond that counts. The after part of looking in the mirror. Remember this past week, if you were here, we talked about the before, during, and after of looking in the mirror. It's how we respond that counts. Again, up here on the board, this is the process we just took. Failure is a crossroad every time we confess our sin. We stand at a crossroad to one side, there's condemnation, stay down. To the other is salvation, get up. The righteous person gets up every time, glorifying God in the process. We just saw that in Proverbs 24. All right, let's get back to our instigating uh, passage, the one that we find so very encouraging. Go to Philippians 3.13. Philippians 3, verse 13. I know about 15, 20 minutes ago I told you to hold your thumb. Is it too long? You're like, I'm not holding my thumb any longer. It's turning blue. Philippians 3.13 Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Don't, please don't forget that. Forgetting what lies behind. If you don't, you will live in condemnation. If you don't, the religious part of your flesh will basically torture you. And the flesh of everybody else in your family and your friends in the world will torture you. Tell you, I remember you. Hey, remember that time? Remember that time when you woke up drunk in the ditch and you were like missing this and, you know, your false teeth are over there and your shoe was over there and your hairpiece was over there and your people were like, that doesn't describe any of us. How do you know? I could be talking about myself. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Up here on the board. Forgetting what lies behind. Yesterday is gone. You can't get it back. Accept it. It's true. We can and should learn from our mistakes, but we shouldn't perseverate on them. Despondency results when we buy the lie 
that our past defines our future. The only thing we should really worry about or really dwell on is that how wretched we really are as a whole, just for the sake of gratitude. Look how far he's delivered you. Some of you probably, in all fairness, can't even fathom that you're here. Some of you are like, I can't even believe I'm still alive. We have a living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3, that we are entitled to as children of God. Up here on the board, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Mercy is a pull mechanism. Do you understand that? It's a pull. It pulls us out of failure mode, keeping us from becoming depressed. It isn't meant to pull us into the ditch. That's what Paul said. Are we just, well, what? Since grace abounds all the more, are we supposed to sin all the more? In other words, are we supposed to go, woohoo, and dive back into the pit? Just knowing that mercy's here, that it's going to draw us into the pit? No way. Mercy's a pull. All right, you're in the ditch again. Let's get out. It pulls you out. But it's never, ever to be contorted into something that pulls you into the ditch. Again, mercy is a pull mechanism. It pulls us out of failure mode. And some of you think about your lifestyle. Some of you are like, man, I just, you know, I was doing this thing. I hadn't had a drink in 10 years. And then I just fell off the wagon. Now I'm drinking again. I hadn't, you know, I haven't touched this drug or I haven't done this disgusting sexual sin in a while. And here I am doing it again. <clears throat> whatever that thing is, whatever that lifestyle failure is, um, I haven't chased wealth or so, I don't know, whatever. You, you choose what it is. Mercy is a pull mechanism. It pulls us out of failure mode, keeping us from becoming depressed. It isn't meant to pull us into the ditch, only out of it. In other words, mercy isn't a license to sin. As soon as you make that mistake, if you make that mistake, you lose. The peace you wanted is gone. It goes... Your happiness, your contentment, your confidence. Because remember, your confidence is a result of knowing that you're right before God. And if you know you're wrong, what do you get? Not confidence, insecurity, misery. So please, don't make that mistake that mercy is a license to sin. Think of mercy as a pull mechanism Think of mercy as something we live in, we live in gratitude of. In other words, what the awful flesh gets us into, God's mercy gets us out of. So the danger here that the Spirit's been sort of sprinkling into this morning's message, the danger is to premeditate the whole thing. Don't be, don't be a wise guy and premeditate the whole thing. That's why you're miserable. That's why you're miserable. Because you do that very thing. Instead of just saying, mercy is getting me out of things when I do fail, 
you take it a couple of steps back and premeditate the entire process. Philippians 3.13, again, I don't want to get too far away from encouragement. There's just balanced statements. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. By the grace of God alone, we are able to walk out of a decimating situation alive and in one piece. By the grace of God alone. I know some of you literally are saying, by the grace of God, I'm still alive. Probably shouldn't be. But by His grace, we walk out of decimating situations in one piece. That's what brings glory to God. Not the fact that we put Him to the test. When we look back, can we only shake our heads, or we can only shake our heads and say, Thank you, Lord. Let's go back to where we all began up here on the board. Proverbs 3.26 For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. On Wednesday I gave you a, a homemade parable of sorts about an old man who tripped over the same railroad tie for 10 years. And it wasn't until he changed an old habit that he stopped tripping. And we must follow his example. We're not just to confess our sin of tripping up. That is line itemizing and that's religious. It's good, but that's where it stops and that's where our intention stops. We've missed the point. God's after you. When God says confess sin, he's talking about all of it. He's talking about your sinful lifestyle even. The choices that you keep making. He wants you to confess all of it so you can be set free, so you can have confidence in the right way. So I gave you that parable, and we must follow his example. Instead of accepting certain sins as, you know, normal in our lives, I say, well, they've just been there so long, um, I'm not going to really address them. Instead of accepting certain sins as normal in our lives, we must step back and examine why we keep tripping. That's the whole point. Why do you keep tripping? And then make the change. And I have in my notes here all capital letters. Make the change. Make the change. It means your lifestyle. It's great and fine that you recognize a certain sin. But you keep tripping over the same railroad tie. You keep sinning the same way, and you will continue to do so for as long as you reject the notion of making a change in your lifestyle. And for as long as you do that, you have misery. Here's an email I received after Wednesday's message. What a powerful message. I was thinking about how we use the phrase, God sees the heart, almost as a catchphrase <clears throat> or a way to piously evaluate or judge another believer. In this way, I believe we have become very familiar with what it truly means 
our walk with God is all about motivation. Why do we obey? Why do we disobey? Why do we have a, quote, sin that so easily entangles us? As you taught, it's easy to simply name sins to God, even sincerely feel remorse for them. It's a whole nother level to ask Him to reveal your motives behind them. Then, as you said, you have to stand naked in front of the Creator of the universe as you both gaze at your evil. Of course, this is the only way you can be set free. But the flesh, sure to heck, does not want that kind of scrutiny. Light exposing its darkness. What a mess we are, huh? Anyway, thank you. You are in my prayers. This person understands what the Spirit's been getting at, and it makes me very happy for them. I, could, I don't care that it was directed towards me or even encouraging to me. At this juncture, I'm happy for them because that kind of thinking is exactly what the Spirit's been teaching us. That's the pathway to freedom. And I know this person personally, and I know that they've been set free in many, many areas of their life that maybe 20 years ago they would have been like, I don't know how that's ever going to happen, but it has. So this person understands what the Spirit's been getting at, and it makes me very happy for them. I was thinking about it. forces me to think sometimes about such things. I think, and I've taught this before, I think the final frontier for most of us, for all of us really, is our lifestyles. The final frontier is our lifestyles. People are like, I hate when you use that word. Why? Why do you hate it when the Spirit ordains a message like this? Why do you hate that the Spirit says, it's cool that you have line items, but what about you? What about your heart? What about your motivations? And like a few, few Sundays ago, he just asked the question straight up, why are you here? Like literally, why are you personally here this morning? Honestly, why are you here? Well, you know, and only you can decide that. I could fit it into my schedule. Is it fair to say that most Christians, definitely the vast majority of Christians I know, um, it's, not, it's not living for Christ with pockets of failure. It's a lifestyle of failure with pockets of living for Christ. That's the average Christian. In other words, they're not all in. Church is uh, a religious thing that they do. They go, mm-hmm. oh, it's Sunday, it's 10 o'clock. I might as well go to church. I need to go to church because I've got to fit God into my schedule. That's com- literally, literally the exact opposite. It's like a photo negative almost. It's literally the exact opposite. You are designed to wake up for Christ. You are designed to wake up with an attitude for goodness. Church, blogs, reading your Bibles, they're not insertions into your busy schedule. 
that's supposed to be the 24 hours to start with and then your flesh makes inroads and you have little pockets of failure you see the difference they're literally like photo negatives they're the op they're literally the exact opposite you might say in a 24-hour period what dominates you Tashuka. if your lifestyle is dominated by your flesh then it's Tashuka, is it not that's the way of sin so do you know what you have to confess then your entire lifestyle that's what you have to confess you have to look in the mirror and go my entire lifestyle is against Christ that's why I'm miserable I wake up in the morning and it's not about him it's about me oh yes that's right I just bought that new pancake mix chocolate chip pancakes with syrup <laughs> some of you are like you do this and I'm like, oh, thanks thank you for this food very little gratitude very little remembrance of Jesus Christ just your own appetite getting in the way. That's the point. He's saying to all of you, after all this work we've done, think of all the work we've done. He's saying, at the end of the day, I want all of you. I don't want you just to confess your little sins of drunkenness or impropriety or whatever the, heck you, whatever the sin was. That's like, that's like children. That's what children do, right? I'm sorry. That's what that's that's children, right? No, he's saying I want I want all of you. Not because I just want to like press you down and rob you of all your joy in this life. It's because I want to see you not miserable anymore. I want to see you delivered from that ugliness you call your life. That's the right attitude. So the final frontier for us is our lifestyles up here on the board. 1 John 3.18, the Amplified. Little children, believers, dear ones, let us not love merely in theory, with word or with tongue, giving lip service to compassion, but in action and in truth, in practice and in sincerity, because practical acts of love are more than words. in action, and in truth. In other words, all of you, all of you, of course, I just lost my slides. Let me know when you guys are ready. <clears throat> the Bible calls words void of action. Think about this. Don't be distracted, because I'm trying to be, they're trying to distract me right now. Don't be distracted. Way too big of a principle I just gave you. You think that's by mistake? The Bible calls words void of action, empty words. Empty words. Think about that. Are you thinking about it? Yeah, my slides are trash. Did you guys finish it? You keep putting your thumb up, but it's not working. Hold on, let me try again. Yeah, it's not working. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to plug on 
<coughs> it's very obvious what's going on here. The Bible calls words of void of action empty words. I love Jesus. But it seemed like, I'm just saying, you liked your chocolate chip pancakes a little bit more. Jesus who? Jesus who? Even your prayer was void of actual gratitude. You figured you worked hard for your $7 bottle of actual maple syrup instead of corn syrup with flavoring. Right? Who do you attribute it to? I earned this. I deserve it. I deserve these new pumps that make me six foot two when I'm really five foot two. I deserve this new hairpiece that makes me look 30 years younger. I don't know what my fascination, I'm not getting a hairpiece, by the way. I deserve this thing. No, you, no, you don't. I love Jesus. Do you? It sounds like you may love yourself more. I'm not trying to put condemnation on you. I'm saying you're miserable because of it. You have to make that connection in your soul. You're miserable. Some of you can relate through all the times you have to self-medicate. You're miserable. You have to self-medicate because you're not listening. Because you're still the centerpiece of your life. You're not listening to what the Spirit's trying to say. The Bible calls words void of action, empty words. Our lives are filled with empty words. If they are, we don't have what this week's blog expressed as love in action. One minute shot. Oh, oh. Nothing. Think about it this way. Whenever we move from point A to point B, the implication is that we took a pathway, right? Imagine yourself moving from point A to point B. I mean, we can trace our steps, in other words. Fair enough? Which means that there was a process we took to get there. Hold that perspective and think about this. I have a slide, but I don't have it. It's called the value of process. Listen, the Spirit wants us to focus on the process, not just what we see in that brief moment we're in front of the mirror, but those moments that stretch before and afterwards. By looking at the whole process, we break out of the box that the flesh likes to stuff our perspective on sin into. That's what the flesh would want nothing more than for you to spend the rest of your life line-itemizing sinful behavior. Because that allows you to be totally religious. It allows you to take the entirety of sin and put it in a nice little tidy box. Right? And that's it. And all you have to confess are the little boxes. But what about the rest of your life? What about your lifestyle? What about the very attitude that you had before confession and even after confession? Before the mirror and after the mirror. What about before church and after church? Before reading your Bible and after reading your Bible? What about all those times? The flesh loves it when you put your perspective on sin in a box. 
For as long as sin remains in a box, we are riddled with insecurities. Why? Because to whatever degree our sin is in a box, to this degree, the flesh remains or maintains control over us. To whatever degree our sin is in a box, to this degree, the flesh maintains control over us. I think I'm just going to just about finish here. If the flesh maintains said control, we are plagued with the fruit of the flesh. There's no other option. That's the whole point. If your life, not your little sin boxes, if your life, if the basis of your life is being controlled, Tashuka, by sin, by sinfulness, if that's your tendency, then you suffer and are plagued with the fruit of the flesh, which is misery. And I think I'll end here. Misery robs us of peace, quietude, and confidence. Misery robs us of peace, quietude, and confidence. So the Spirit is exhorting us to break out of this box. This, for some of us, like we say, man, life is like hell on earth. My life lately has been hell on earth. Break out of the box. I'm misery. I'm depressed. I'm miserable. I'm depressed. Um, Break out of the box. Stop playing the game. Stop pretending you're all in. You know, telling yourself even, flapping your gums that you're all in, that you love Jesus. Do you, though? That's the question. To whatever degree you're lying to yourself, you're miserable, and that misery robs you of peace, quietude, and confidence. And therefore, since Christ loves you, as does his spirit, as does our Father in heaven, we are being encouraged to break out of that system of thinking, out of that box. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift that was this message. We just ask that it be imprinted upon our souls, Father, and it take root and have its final result, which is to deliver us from whatever misery remains as a result of sin that we cling to, especially as it pertains to our lifestyles, Father. Thank you for revealing the truth about us. Thank you for giving us the word of truth as a mirror to look into. Thank you for giving us the faculty of confession. But it's the truth that always sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes, back to the solitude of our own hearts, and then out to a world that's just lost. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.